Good morning, Terra family. Good morning to those of us who are viewing online. Good to be together. It's been a while since we've been where we're going to be today, which is in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, long enough, I suppose, that maybe for some of you who are newer or visiting with us, uh, you weren't ever here um, during a, a time in which we were going through Matthew's Gospel. And so what I want to do is just take a couple of minutes this morning uh, to stir you up by way of reminder or to catch you up to speed as to where we've been. Uh, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament of our Bibles, the first of four gospel accounts, accounts of the good news of God's redemption of this world through his son, Jesus Christ. And we are nearing the end of that journey in Matthew's gospel. Uh, We've taken a break for the past uh, few months to kind of explore some other subjects and series. So here's just a brief overview of where we've been and of Matthew's gospel to this point. At the beginning, in, in chapter one, Matthew presents Jesus through a genealogy, which is just kind of a long family lineage in history. And he moves through this genealogy, and what he does is he points out to us that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited king. He's the, he's the king that was prophesied to sit on the throne of David, but he's more than that. He's also the savior of the world. That's something that David or any other king in that line of kings could never be. So Matthew understood Jesus to be not just a king, but also the long-awaited Messiah of Israel and of the world. And then the rest of this book chronicles the life and ministry of Jesus, his earthly teaching and ministry that just serves to affirm that reality that he is in fact the Christ, the Messiah. At times, it appears very counterintuitive to his disciples, uh, and they don't see it as such. They don't see Jesus as the Messiah they envisioned. We'll, we'll catch another glimpse of that in our passage today. But nonetheless, this is who Jesus reveals himself as throughout Matthew's gospel. When we look at chapters one through three on the whole, this is Jesus's life as a, as a baby and then a child. And what's demonstrated is his power over earthly kings. You may remember uh, King Herod, who kind of ruled under Rome's rule in that day, uh, what felt the threat of this Messiah who had, had, there was rumors of had arisen. And so he seeks to eliminate him, destroy him by killing all of the uh, the, the males to and under uh, in Jerusalem. But Jesus is untouched, um, demonstrating his power over earthly kings. Then in chapter four, there's a big time gap between Jesus's childhood and him being on the threshold of entering into his, uh, his ministry at around, the, around about the age of 30 or so. But before he does that, he goes off into the wilderness to pray and to fast, to receive power from God, to be able to do this thing he's been called to. And he triumphs over not an earthly prince this time, but the spiritual prince of darkness. And he does so by using the word of God. Well, his words, after all, he is the word of God. So first we see that Jesus triumphs and over earthly rulers, uh, earthly rulers fail to derail the true king um, as a baby. And then we see Satan fails to derail the true king as Jesus' ministry is about to begin. Chapters 5 through 25, where we're up to at this point, or what we've gone through, we see Jesus all throughout those chapters gathering to himself a band of disciples, followers of his that he's revealing himself to, teaching himself about, teaching about himself to them. Um, and and these, he's doing so because these disciples will outlive him um, in spreading the news of the gospel of the kingdom. And while he's doing that and gathering these disciples, he demonstrates his authority 
over uh, other authorities, prior authorities in Israel's history, like Abraham and Moses, who were long since dead and gone, but significant figures of the Old Testament, as well as his contemporaries, the religious leaders of Jesus' own day. It's, and it's not that he was saying their teachings were wrong, all right? But what Jesus was doing was he was showing that the source of their teachings were in himself. And so there was a lack of clarity and understanding on the parts of his contemporaries, and even to some degree the Old Testament prophets and kings and priests before him, as to truly what he meant by his words in the Old Testament. So he sought to bring clarity. So he had authority in his teaching, and he's establishing that. But also in chapters 5 through 25, Jesus not only demonstrates his authority as teacher over all prior in Israel, but also his power and authority over death and disease and demons. And he brings healing, both here and now, as an expression of both his real compassion for the suffering on earth now, but also as pointers to the complete and full healing and wholeness that awaits those who will be with him in his eternal kingdom. All along the way, as Jesus demonstrates his authority and power as a teacher of God's word, as the word, as well as over Satan and disease and death, he encounters resistance, both from within his band of disciples and outside of his band of disciples. His own disciples are constantly jockeying for position of greater status amongst each other, even as Jesus teaches them again and again that the greatest one in the kingdom of heaven is the one who serves all. And then from without his disciples, those who were more, uh, had more animus towards him and were opposing him, the religious leaders of his day, were constantly on the defensive around Jesus. And they were seeking to protect their current positions of status and respect in Israel because Jesus seemed to threaten it. So opposition from all sides, both within and without. And that brings us to these last three chapters, chapters 26 through 28 of Matthew's Gospel which honestly do more to confuse Jesus' followers, his disciples, than anything that's come before as he heads to the cross, as he heads to suffering and death. And at the same time, he's simultaneously doing more to affirm his true identity as the Messiah than anything that has come before this time. Now, these last three chapters that we'll be in up through Easter and the week after Easter this year are all narrative, okay? They're all story. We've just moved out back in the end of November, a large section of teaching on Jesus's part. It's basically story, narrative from here on out, which chronicles kind of in rapid succession these last moments of Jesus's earthly life and ministry. From the Passover meal that he's about to eat with his disciples, to his betray the betrayal of one of his own in Judas, to his trial before Pontius Pilate, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and finally his immortal words to his disciples just before he ascends to heaven. And so let's pick up together in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16, which is where we'll be today. You can open your own Bibles if you've not already to Matthew 26. You can follow along on the screen behind me as well. The text will be up there too. When Jesus had finished saying all of these things, okay, so the big block of teaching he just finished, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar amongst the people. Verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. In our time today, what I want to do is share with you one observation that I have from this passage, and then one principle that, in, that kind of inclines itself more towards application. So one observation and then a principle that we can use and, and seek to apply to our, our life today. So here's the observation from these three different chunks of scripture in verses one through 16. Jesus is either an obstacle to your agenda or he is your agenda. There is no in-between. Jesus is either an obstacle to your agenda or he is your agenda. There is no in-between, no middle ground. What we see in this passage is there's a lot of preparations going on. I don't think that that's by accident. We're, we're given uh, basically four different vignettes of different people groups here that are all preparing for something. You've got people who are, it's implied, preparing for the Passover, all these pilgrims that are descending upon Jerusalem. Um, preparing for that great uh, religious festival and celebration in Israel. You've got the religious leaders that, we're, that are on display here who are preparing and plotting to arrest and to kill Jesus. You have a woman who's preparing Jesus for burial, perhaps unwittingly. We don't know for sure if she even fully realized what it was she was doing here. She may have. And then you have Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, who's making preparations to betray him. But everyone in this scene is busy in one form or another, either preparing to receive Jesus or preparing to reject Jesus, either working for or working against Jesus, because Jesus is either our agenda or he's an obstacle to our agenda. Maybe that sounds too much like a, a false dichotomy to you, like there should be more middle ground options than one or the other of those two things. But when it comes to this issue and how we approach Jesus, he doesn't really give us middle ground. We've seen time and again, as we've read through Matthew's gospel, Jesus doesn't leave middle ground. That's a mercy on his part, lest we be caught up in this false sense of security and complacency. He says things like in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He doesn't leave room for middle ground. He never does. Everyone present in this passage is either seen moving towards Jesus or pushing him away. So let's just consider how that plays out practically in the lives of these people and consider even where that may be present in our own. 
We see people here who are preparing to remember Jesus, people who are preparing to remove Jesus from their lives, people who are preparing to revere Jesus, to adore him, to worship him, to make much of him, and people who are preparing to renounce Jesus. So let's go through each of those briefly. When, number one, when Jesus is our agenda, we will seek opportunities to remember him. We'll be inclined that way. We will desire to put ourselves in a position to be reminded of who Jesus is. Now, obviously not every person who was in Jerusalem for Passover was there with sincere motivations and faith, just like today. There's a lot of religion in the sense of we just go through the motions ritualistically. All right? And beyond that, very few probably understood the connection between Passover which was this occasion in, this, in the Old Testament book of Exodus where a, a lamb was slain by the different households and families so that uh, the spirit of death would pass over them. And that happened all before the Exodus from Egypt, God's salvation of his people Egypt uh, from the land of Egypt. So very few people understood the connection between the Passover and the feast they were about to celebrate and how this pointed to Jesus. But... What we do know is that many there in Jerusalem were sincere in worshiping God in light of what he had revealed to himself or about himself to that point. And for many pilgrims, we need to understand too that that journey to Jerusalem came at great cost, literally, financially for them, uh, physically at great cost, time-wise at great cost, as they put their lives back home on hold for a season to be able to make this journey to Jerusalem. Not everybody who was there for the Passover was from Jerusalem. In fact, the city swole to about five or six times its normal size from all these pilgrims making the journey there. So these pilgrims, many, for many of them, their lives were ordered around this occasion and other occasions to make much of and to remember God and what he had done for them because their agenda was to, to live for God and to know God. On the other hand, when Jesus is an obstacle to our agenda, we will seek opportunities to remove him. At a time when the rest of the people were preparing to remember the Passover, the religious leaders were preoccupied with figuring out how they could remove from their midst the one that the Passover pointed to. Jesus was an obstacle to their agenda. I think a helpful diagnostic for us to discern our own agendas or whether Jesus is an obstacle to our agendas is to ask and seek to answer the following question. Are the, are the following things more burdens to you or more blessings to you? Gathering together with the people of God for church on a Sunday. Gathering in your tribe settings. Prayer gatherings. Fellowship with other believers in, in general. Reading your Bible personal prayer, liturgical rhythms in the life of the church, things like Advent and Christmas, and as Matt talked about this morning, Lent and Easter, sacraments, things we do to remember Jesus, communion, baptism, and things like these. Do you find them to be dull and boring, looking for an excuse to get out of or avoid these things when you can? Do you find them to be meaningless rituals and activities that tend to interfere with the things that you feel are more important to you, more exciting to you? It may be that for you, Jesus is, is, is on the menu, per se, of your life, but he's just one of many possible options, and oftentimes he's, he's not the one that appeals to you. 
And that may reveal that Jesus is actually more of an obstacle to your agenda and not the agenda himself. Thirdly, when Jesus is our agenda, then we will seek opportunities to revere him, to worship him, to adore him, to make much of him. In a way that baffled and even angered Jesus' disciples here, this woman expressed her love for Jesus when everyone else's minds were someplace else. She pours out on Jesus a perfume so expensive that it was the equivalent of an average year's earnings, Um, the average savings that an American, for example, would have in their retirement. I'll talk more about that in a moment. This is significant, the value of this thing that she pours out upon Jesus. Her first thought was, Jesus is more important to me than anything else, and I don't know much how, how much longer I'm going to have with him. Everyone else's thoughts were, oh, what, what a waste. Think of what we could have done with that. We could have sold that and given that to the poor among us instead, where there's real need. On the other hand, when Jesus is an obstacle to our agenda, we will seek opportunities to renounce him, to discredit him. Judas at this point appears to be done with Jesus. Now, while the other disciples may have actually been on a journey towards increasingly realizing Jesus' worth, Judas had seen enough to make up his mind that Jesus wasn't worth giving up his possessions and popularity. We read about it more explicitly in John's Gospel where Judas is homed in on and we see that he actually uh, was the one who was most incredulous in this moment, and it was because he was more concerned with the money that he was uh, the, the caretaker of, which he used to steal from for himself. See, Judas, at this point in time, had made up his mind that Jesus was no longer worth his popularity and possessions and material wealth. So he sought to distance himself from Jesus and at the same time recover some of probably what he had lost in the sacrifice of following after Jesus. So he goes to the religious leaders and he offers for a price to aid them in their plan to arrest and remove Jesus. All the while beginning to align himself more and more with who he sees as being the winning team. There is a parable that Matthew, uh, that Jesus is recorded by Matthew of Jesus earlier in the gospel. It talks about four different types of soils. Uh, and um, basically, these are representative of our different responses to Jesus. And Judas, in those different responses, is like the third soil. He was intrigued by Jesus for a while. But when it seemed like Jesus might no longer suit his agenda, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked out his belief. Basically, Judas weighed his options and he decided, "Ah, Jesus isn't worth it. So he renounced Jesus and he sought to distance himself from him. Judas was a fair weather fan. And when it looked like Jesus wasn't gonna be the one to serve Judas's agenda anymore, he shifted his loyalty to someone else who he felt could. But understand, this was probably Judas's posture from the beginning and the circumstances just revealed what was always true. That's why it's so important to understand that Jesus is either the agenda in your life or he's an obstacle to our agenda. There is no middle ground because it's when we believe there's a middle ground that we can start convincing ourselves that we're followers of Jesus when we're not. And listen, in a world that's constantly going to challenge the biblical portrayal of Jesus and his ways, there's going to be a constant temptation to take the more comfortable path. And what that will often look like 
is aligning ourselves with the place that it's convenient to be on Team Jesus and distancing ourselves from him at the points that it's not. But at that point, Jesus is no longer our agenda. He's an obstacle to our agenda. So as we look at all the parties that are involved in this scene, we see, we see a paradigm here at play that everyone is either at all times moving towards Jesus or moving away from him because he's either the focal point of their agenda or he's interfering with their agenda. And that's representative of the options for the journeys that all of us are on, just those two. Which is it for you? Is Jesus your primary agenda? Is he the person that you strive to have everything else in your life revolve around as the rule? Or is he an obstacle to your agenda, fitting him in where it's convenient, but distancing yourself from him where he's at odds for the plans that you have for your life? So that's the first thing this morning we see in this passage, is that observation that Jesus either either is our agenda or he's an obstacle to our agenda. But there's also a principle at play here that's really important in this journey of discipleship. And it's something that we can work to apply to our life. And it's this, selfless love for others starts with and is sustained by supreme love for Jesus. Selfless love for others starts with and is sustained by, throughout this journey, supreme love, preeminent love for Jesus. This is where I wanna dive in a bit more deeply into the story that's kind of the, the meat of our passage today with Jesus being anointed by this woman. A little bit more background for you here. As I'd mentioned earlier, this perfume is the equivalent, we know from Mark's gospel, of about a year's savings, not an insignificant amount. So this is, maybe this will help put things in perspective for you. For the average American who's between the ages of 45 and 54, which I picked that's because that's kind of primary earning years, so average, top to bottom, uh, they make $60,000. That's an average year's earning for that age bracket. And that also, interestingly enough, is roughly equivalent to the average amount of savings that an average American will have at retirement, around $60,000 in their bank, okay? So maybe a modern equivalent to put this in perspective for us would be like if an economically middle-class American man spent his entire savings, $60,000, on a wedding ring for his bride because he genuinely loved her. Not because he felt the pressures of culture, not because he was materialistic, not because he felt the pressures from family or from her to get her a big old rock on that, on that ring. He just wanted to show how much he loved her. Many of us, understandably, would probably think to ourselves, well, that's not very wise. We might even advise them as such if they were a family or, or, or member or a friend. I mean, we might think to ourselves that the bulk of that, I mean, you could probably get a pretty nice ring for a couple thousand dollars and put the rest back in that bank for a rainy day down the road, right? Or at least if you're going to spend that amount of money, don't spend it on something so superficial, so materialistic. Like, give that money to charity where there's real need. No doubt this is what bothered the disciples so much about this situation. In their minds, it was pragmatically wasteful. I mean, if this perfume to this woman was so dispensable, it should have instead been sold and the proceeds used to meet the incredible needs of brokenness and hurting that were all around them. And at face value, that sounds good. That sounds noble even. But on a deeper level, it said something about the value that they assigned to Jesus. 
Now, if you weren't familiar with this account, and some of you may not be this morning, you might have expected Jesus' response uh, to be one of empathy with the shock and indignation of his disciples and to gently rebuke her for this poor use of her resources. But that isn't what he does, perhaps to our surprise. He says, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. This is probably example 724 of things you did not expect Jesus to say, if we're honest. But again, maybe that says more about us than anything else. Because sometimes as Christians, we can be so pragmatic in our Christianity that we, re- we miss the reason why we were compelled to give of ourselves and to serve others to begin with, which is the beauty and the glory and the value and the worth of Jesus. And only that can truly sustain you in a pure and selfless way to love others and to serve others. And when we get that backwards, when we are about the work of Jesus first, and the person of Jesus second, two things can happen. We can bring temporal change to others around us in our life, but be spiritually bankrupt ourselves. And secondly, we can bring temporal change to others without ever pointing them to the source for the spiritual change that they need even more. So let's talk about each of those briefly. First, we can bring temporal change to others, but end up being spiritually bankrupt ourselves when we get these two things inversed. There was a pastor who was speaking at a major Christian conference for college students, and he was making this point, and he did so through this illustration. He talked about how there was good mission work being done on many of their college campuses, particularly in this area, to see an end to sex slavery of various kinds. And then he talked about how the statistics on these very same college campuses were that 90% of men, nine out of every 10 guys, And 30% of women, three out of every 10 women, were engaged with or looking at regularly sexually explicit material online. And there was inevitably some overlap between these two groups. So in other words, some of the same people who were passionate about seeing an end to sex slavery were themselves propagating it through what they viewed online. Because this is what happens when Jesus' value in our lives is secondary to the things Jesus calls us to. And it either ends for us in burnout where we have nothing left to give because we had no true wellspring to begin with from which we were giving it, or it ends in moral failure and hypocrisy as Christians. Secondly, when we get these things backwards, we can bring temporal change to others without ever pointing them to the source for the spiritual change that they need even even more. See, when Jesus becomes functionally a code of ethics that we strive to live by and not the supreme treasure in our lives, our service to others will meet real practical needs, but without ever supplying those same people with the answers to their real spiritual needs. Maybe a metaphor to help illustrate, if I was to my whole life run back and forth between a well and a person who is dying of thirst to give them a cup of water, it would be helpful that water would keep them from physically dying. But if that's all that it is, then I become that person's functional savior rather than as an extension of Jesus' hands and feet, pointing through my actions and words back to him and allowing him to be their ultimate savior, both body and soul. 
please hear me that what I'm not saying here is that Jesus doesn't care about the poor. We know that's clear. Maybe it's even no coincidence that the passage just prior to this one we finished on back in November in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus equated helping the poor with serving him. So important to him, was it? And even in Jesus saying what he said here to his disciples, that you will always have the poor with you, interestingly, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15, 11, in which Moses in Deuteronomy completes that thought by giving God's law, which says, therefore, as a result of the poor always being amongst you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, the needy and the poor in your land. It's not an either or, but it is a matter of priority in the kingdom of Jesus. And that priority is to know and to love Jesus to the degree that this extravagant act of worship was not seen by Jesus as a waste, but was lauded and cherished by him. Let me put it this way, if it's more helpful. As a Christian, you can't have genuine compassion without Jesus. And you can't have Jesus without genuine compassion following. Compassion without Jesus ultimately boils down to humanism. Humanism, by definition, is seeking solely rational ways of solving human problems, kind of like, why this waste? This perfume could have been sold for a large amount of money and given to the poor. The disciples were functional humanists in this moment. On the other hand, Jesus without compassion is just pretense, something that appears to be the case that is not actually true, because if we truly love Jesus, it will be reflected in a deep and selfless love for others. Love for Jesus may not always express itself in a Christian's life and selling all of your possessions or draining your entire savings account, but it also might. And if it's done from a heart to honor Jesus as worthy above all else, he doesn't call it folly or wastefulness or selfish or neglectful of the needs around us. He calls it beautiful because he's that worthy and because selfless love for others starts with and is sustained by supreme love for Jesus. But you know, there's, there's one other thing that stuck out to me and, and I really wanted to bring out here before we close and as we lead into our time of communion. And don't check out on me. I know sometimes this time of transition, it's easy to do that. But there's a beautiful irony in this passage that I want for you to see and I want for us to be able to grasp this morning. You've got these disciples here who are fellow sinners with you and I, and they're indignant and they're scolding this woman for pouring out her most precious commodity upon Jesus, who's the most worthy person in the whole universe, and they call it a waste. Think about that. But here's the crazy part. God, in his lavish grace, poured out for unworthy sinners his most precious commodity, the blood of his son, and he didn't call it a waste such as the depth of his love and mercy for us. Some of us have looked at Jesus as an obstacle to our agendas. Perhaps some of us are even guilty of calling others' expressions of love for Jesus a waste, that there would be a better use of their time and their resources. The good news is the disciples were guilty of these things at times too. 
And God knew that when he instructed, he knew that about them, and he knows that about us when he instructed his son to follow through with this lavish act of love on their behalf. So often we are tempted to withhold our best from God, the most worthy being in the entire universe. But today, as you take communion, remember, he knows this. And still, he sent his son and poured out that most precious commodity of his own life for you and for I. Let's pray and give him thanks for that. Father, worthy is your name above all names. You are holy, and in you is no evil. You are generous, you are merciful, you are gracious, to the point which you gave up what was most precious to you for us. Us who frequently withhold that which is most precious to us from you. And forgive us for that, Lord. Father, we love you because you first loved us. So graciously open our eyes this morning to see all the ways in which this is true so that we might respond to you like this woman and not like these disciples. That nothing we cherish in this world could compare to the value that you hold to us in our hearts. Please do this, Lord, for your glory and our joy in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to have two songs for communion, um, but as we go into that time, um, would you please read the first two verses of Psalm 51 as a way to turn our hearts to confession towards the Lord. Let us repent and let us be saved and let us live closer to Jesus. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. <laughs> 